Um, thank you everyone for joining us for this June 2020 edition of Tennessee Turf Tuesday. I'm Tyler Carr. Um, I'm going to be one of your hosts today. I'm one of Dr. Sorokin's graduate students here at the University of Tennessee. Um, this June edition is titled Getting Ramped Up for Summer Diseases. Um, we have a couple uh, non-University of Tennessee people joining us today. Um, we have Dr. Joe Roberts from Clemson University, Dr. Paul Koch from the University of Wisconsin, and I'm also joined by uh, Dr. Brandon Horvath and Dr. John Sorokin, which you guys probably all know Dr. Horvath and Dr. Um, Sorokin pretty well. Uh, before we get into introductions, um, I'm going to go over some logistics, um, some housekeeping items, since, um, since we offer pesticide credits for, for these events. So this webinar will be recorded, it's being recorded currently, and we place these recorded sessions on YouTube. Our YouTube channel is um, UT Turfgrass, and this will also be available um, in podcast format just on, podca on the podcast app search for Tennessee Turf Tuesday. Pesticide credits are only available for live viewing though. So keep that in mind, um, live viewing only. When you registered for this, um, Zoom populated all of the information that's required for um, your pesticide credits. So there's nothing else you need to do, except you need to stay here for the whole entire time. Um, Zoom knows when you, when you arrive and when you leave. Um, and so you need to be here for the entire duration to earn these um, pesticide credits. Also, if you have questions, um, we prefer you to feed those through the Q&A box um, instead of the chat function uh, so we can answer some of those questions live since we also have this in a podcast format. Um, and then I at the end, I will um, pull up information for the GCSAA <coughs> credits um, and we'll do that at the end of the hour. So um, to lead us into uh, our discussion today about our discussion today about summer diseases. Um, Dr. Roberts, do you want to begin with an introduction? Then we can go with doc to Dr. Cope, start this off. Yeah, sure. My name is Joe Roberts. I'm the turfgrass pathologist uh, at Clemson University. I'm actually based in Florence, South Carolina, which is kind of the central PD region, eastern area of the state. Um, and while we do have a, a large focus on warm season diseases um, and, and nematodes uh, of, of both a cool and warm season, we do have a little bit of cool season turf where we, we do see some, some prominent diseases and a lot of them are highly active right now. So uh, happy to be here for the discussion and look forward to hearing what's going on in everyone else's neck of the woods as well. Thanks, Dr. Cope. Yeah, I'm Paul Koch, turf grass pathologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Been here in various forms uh, for about 15 years or so, and um, and we're just starting to ramp up our, our disease season. Haven't haven't seen a lot of activity yet, but uh, looking at the forecast, we should be ramping up here pretty soon, so we can talk about ice just around. starting to melt off, right, Paul? <laughs> yeah, the ice fishing shacks are in now. Those have been you know recommended to come in, so we're just getting ready, man. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks guys for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm Brandon Horbath. I'm the turf grass pathologist at the University of Tennessee. It's uh, always exciting to be joined by a couple of really good colleagues and friends and, and uh, visit uh, with you today about uh, turf grass diseases. And uh, uh, John, you wanna go ahead and give a little introduction of, of you since you'll probably chime in from time to time. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm John Sorokin, turf grass professor at the University of Tennessee. And I'm here just to learn from these three guys a lot. Um, you know, it's, we got a lot going on in our program in terms of trying to establish some cool season grasses during the spring and summer. And so disease pressure is going to be a lot. So I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, asking questions, I'm sure. Great. And uh, just kind of to continue a little bit of the introduction stuff, um, why don't we just go around the horn, Joe and Paul, and, and I'll, I'll share as well. What are you guys working on right now? What's your main thrust of your, your research program? What are the things that are kind of hot topics for, for uh, research projects for you. Joe, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so we obviously, um, we have a lot of warm season turf and, um, you know, we're about an hour from, from Myrtle Beach and, you know, a lot of golf courses in the area um, and dealing with a lot of, of root disease issues. Um, 
and also being in kind of the heart of the, the Southeast, we also deal with a lot of nematode issues. And one of the things that we've noticed uh, in a lot of our diagnostics over the last few years is we see a really strong relationship with, you know, nematode pressure and some of these prominent root disease issues that we're finding. Um, so that's kind of become a major focal point of our research is trying to look for links between um, you know, some of these various nematode populations in association with certain root diseases like take all root rot, uh, mini ring caused by Roxoctonia. And, um, you know, we, we see a lot of this because, you know, obviously a lot of these pathogens, be it nematode or fungi, are, are very prominent. Um, but there are instances where we see differences in control where maybe a nematicide is applied in conjunction with the fungicide. So we're trying to, to look for ways to, to mitigate root disease by examining, you know, certain nematode populations uh, in association with areas with high root disease pressure. Uh, and then we're looking for ways that can, you know, foster root health. So if we're, you know, thinking about whether it be a disease or a nematode that impacts rooting, if we can do anything to enhance rooting, we're going to be able to, you know, be better combat those pests that thrive in the soil. So that's kind of been a, a major focal point of our research over the last few years. Cool. And Paul? Yeah, I would say over the past few years, um, you know, we've got a lot of different things going on that fall into different baskets, but two of the major areas that we've focused on are sort of, you know, microbiomes and modeling. Uh, we've put a lot of, of effort and resources into working, uh, investigating the turf grass microbiome, particularly focused on how it responds to, to various uh, pesticide programs and also how we can harness the microbiome for improved disease control. And so I've talked with Joe Roberts a lot on that on that topic, and we've had some some projects that we've worked together on. So that's been that's been one area that we've we've really focused on. And then uh, disease modeling as well. So, you know, we, we were uh, worked with Damon Smith and Jim Kearns and Brandon yourself on creating the, the Smith Kearns dollar spot model. So uh, we still are looking at various uses of, of the Smith Kearns dollar spot model, in particular, how to use that model for more precision based management of, of dollar spot and, and really targeting areas of the golf course that, uh, that need. Uh, more applications than other lower pressure areas of the golf course. So really looking at that precision disease management using modeling uh, to help uh, base those applications. And then we're working on a couple of new models uh, for snow molds. So one is uh, for uh, timing of fungicide applications for the traditional, you know, long snow cover duration snow molds like gray snow mold and pink snow mold that we would get here in the Midwest. And then we've also been working for uh, several years with Alec Kowaleski and his team out at Oregon State and also some partners in Ireland and France on creating a new microdokian patch model, um, sort of using a similar strategy that we use to build the dollar spot model. So we're actually, we've been working on both those projects for about six-ish years or so now, and we're getting ready to sort of um, create the first version of those models and beta test them in the field. So. Yeah, that's cool. That's exciting. That's uh, certainly something that's been a long time coming. If you've spent any time up in the the the, the great uh, the great white north uh, with snow cover, and I know Paul, you've spent some time uh, drilling uh, ice out to to measure fungicide dissipation and under snow and ice cover. Um, that those diseases are really significant in terms of the damage that they, they can cause to turf stands and and uh, having a model to better. Uh, predict when they're going to occur and and get those fungicides out on time so that they get we get good control is going to be a huge thing for the industry i think yeah i mean i think one thing that we've noticed over the past 10 years is 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 the time where you apply your snowmobile fungicides is shifting and it's shifting year to year right you know traditionally everybody would have a date on the calendar you put your snowmobile out on that date the former turf pathologist here at uw his name was gail wharf and he always told our superintendents here in Wisconsin, you put your snow mold out before you go sit in the deer stand. And in Wisconsin, gun deer season is Thanksgiving week. And so you'd always have your, your snow mold fungicides out before, you, uh, before Thanksgiving. But now, you know, those, you can, we can have some really warm falls. We've had those lately where there's just a lot of rain uh, through early December, and it doesn't make any sense to put out your application at that time. So I think we're trying to get to a more uh, data-driven and, and weather-based, environmental-based application system um, compared to just a simple calendar-based method. That's great. And, you know, Paul, we've, we've seen a lot of variation in, in warm season fall disease timings as well. Um, you know, just thinking about, you know, 
spring dead spot, large patch, for instance, you know, we always like to target or we, we tout targeting that 70 degree soil temperature mark. And I've seen such a strong variation in that over the last five to 10 years. Um, you know, in my time at the University of Maryland, you know, beginning in 2015, you know, we were beginning those applications in September, whereas a lot of, uh, you know, superintendents that I'd worked with that they had, you know, this idea that even sometimes in August was the right time to apply. And even within the last, you know, five, seven years, we've had, you know, first apps going out in the second week of October, you know, so you're, if you were of that mindset of, of an August application, and really timing is in October, you're talking about a, a two month window that could be missed, you know, so, so definitely adhering to those environmental conditions is really important. On the flip side of that, you know, one of the questions that we get often is, you know, trying to target large patch timings. And when you're thinking about managing lots of properties and trying to hit that window, um, they, you know, I get, I get questions over, you know, how much leeway is there within that. So again, you know, just reiterating the, the environmental conditions across both cool and warm season, definitely really important when we're focusing in on these fall winter diseases. So. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a, a little bit of a segue. I'll just share a little bit about what, what we're working on. I've got a, a master's student that is working on a U.S. Golf Association funded project looking at uh, the interaction uh, between uh, the host of, of Dollar Spot on golf courses and bent grass, both creeping and colonial, and then the Dollar Spot pathogen. And, uh, and then looking at the um, the, the interaction, uh, the plant pathogen interaction kind of right at the point where uh, the, the pathogen infects the, the plant and, and looking at what's being, you know, kind of upregulated and downregulated both in the plant and in the fungus to better understand that, that interaction and, and provide some, some uh, clarity to that. And, you know, it, it's one of those things, I'm not, I'm not that old, uh, but I remember, you know, 15, 20 years ago where we used to laugh and, and, and wish and hope that we would have, you know, a genome sequence of something that was related to turf grass. And now we have the genome sequences for the, the host and the genome sequences for the pathogen. And that gives us the ability to do things that, you know, we weren't able to do just, you know, a, a handful of years ago, which is really kind of exciting to, to see come to the forefront and be able to be used in, in something like turf uh, and, and better understand what's happening with these plants when they, they infect um, the, the grass plant. Um, you're exactly right, Joe. I mean, that, that large patch timing is, has been a question from you know, pretty much day one I started here in Tennessee. We're in the heart of the transition zone. Uh, so you know, Dr. Sorokin likes to teach the students early on that we grow all the grasses equally poorly. And, and that's, that's pretty much the, the you know, that's uh, from, from Dr. Powell up at Kentucky. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, we have, uh, right now, we have St. Augustine grass at our research farm that has large patch the size of, of uh, uh, semi-trucks. And, uh, and it's active presently in June. And then, you know, we get into something like zoysia, and then we've got zoysia matrella and zoysia japonica, and we see some differences there. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, being able to understand when those uh, diseases are occurring and when they need to be uh, treated is, is a key consideration. And I think one of the things that's challenging, especially with large patch, we see it somewhat, and I'd be interested in your comment with spring dead spot too, but, um, we want to we want to be like you guys up north, Paul, and we want to be able to have just you know we make two apps and then we're good, right? Like for the winter, and and uh, we make our two apps for large patch, and then we're we should be covered for the for the rest of the the fall and the into the winter and into the spring, and it's so driven by the environmental conditions. We could have a fall that's dry that is you know, moderate in temperature where we might not see a tremendous amount of activity. And then we can have a, a fall that's warm and wet and we could just see it blow up you know, and, and blow up for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And, and that, that recipe of a couple of applications doesn't really hold. And to some extent, I think that's true with spring dead spot too, wouldn't you say, Joe? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I think that with these later initiations, um, like say we're getting into, you know, the first or second week of October with just starting our applications, 
one thing that we've seen in ours is maybe pinching that window. Um, you know, instead of going a, a 228 day, you know, maybe going down to a 21 day if you're already starting so late, because we, we know we have, an, we have an idea of that window of when that fungus is active uh, or those fungi that cause spring dead spot are active. So, you know, that's one of the recommendations that we have. I know that there has been some instances where there's been some experimentation. Uh, you know, I, I get questions about, you know, spring applications. Um, we actually see spring dead spot develop in December um, in our neck of the woods. So the damage is, is already done. So I think, you know, hitting that initial timing and, and then, you know, making, taking special care with that window. And, you know, we've even seen some instances where um, some products at, at decent rates, um, you know, have had good control even with a single app. But again, we need to, to test that in a little bit more detail. So Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's a good segue to, uh, you know, we, we, we discussed kind of some questions that we wanted to talk about. And, and uh, I think this will kind of highlight for the, the audience some of the, the challenges that we all face with, with these diseases, both in the cool and warm season growing regions. But like if you were going to list, you know, Paul, what would, what would be your, your top five, uh, let's say, you know, most difficult to control uh, diseases in the, in the cool season turf region? Yeah, so... Um... You know, if you go by dollars spent, right? If you're in the north, upper Midwest, it's probably going to be dollar spot, snow mold, anthracnose, brown patch, and maybe a root disease, right? If you go, uh, you know, southern Midwest, you could probably swap out the snow mold for anthracnose, switch those two around. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, dollar spot's not a particularly difficult disease to control if you have the resources and, and the products available. When we get to you know difficulty in in control, we're normally talking about something on the roots. And, and root diseases, just like down south, are, are so diff difficult because by the time you see them, the damage is done, right? There's not a whole lot you're going to do to control the pathogen at that point in time. You're really more just managing the stress on, on the plant. So as far as, as difficulty, um, you know, the take-all patch and summer patch, and, and we're seeing, it seems like, more and more uh, pythium root rot uh, in, in, in the Midwest. And it really, it really tends to localize in areas that, that get heavy spring rain, rainfalls. So we don't see widespread pythium root rot outbreaks which you know is 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 good because we don't have a lot of superintendents getting really devastated by the disease but it's frustrating because if you're one of those superintendents that happens to be in in an area that that gets a lot of rainfall for for periods of the spring and early summer you don't have a lot of you know warning that it's that it's that 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 disease is going to is going to come and it can be pretty damaging when it does come and just like the other root diseases once once the damage is there you're just you're kind of you're playing catch up the rest of the year so those root diseases are, are, are challenging and, and pythium root rot in our region is one that's become more common over the past uh, couple of years that we've been trying to get uh, better information on and um, get a better handle on when and where it's going to occur. Right, for sure. And Joe, like, what would you, what would you say is the, the top five in the South in the warm season in terms of difficulty to control? Yeah, I mean, we're still going to be below ground when we're talking about these. And, and I mean, it's not to say, again, that we don't have foliar disease issues. But, you know, if you're really robust in trying to target root diseases, we see fairly good control of the, the foliar diseases through those applications. So I, I would say, you know, take all root rot, mini ring, large patch, spring dead spot and leaf spots, um, you know, to throw a foliar in there. Um, but pythium root rot is, is definitely one that we see a lot as well. It's kind of hard to narrow it down to five. We see so many. <laughs> True. Um, but we've started to see, you know, pythium root rot even on warm season. You know, in, in the past, we kind of, you know, focused more on pythium root rot for, for creeping bent grass, especially, you know, where we are with, with very intense summer conditions. It's not unheard of or it's, it's very common for us to see pythium root rot on bent grass you know, grown uh, in our area, but uh, what, or I guess what little bent grass is still grown here, but we're seeing more pythium root rot, um, you know, on, on Bermuda grass or ultra dwarf greens. And, and that's definitely a problem. I mean, thankfully we, we do have some good chemistries that are able to combat that, but um, you know, that can occur at times of the year. And oftentimes with all these root diseases, you're just really limping these, these uh, areas along, you know, during periods that it's, it's really tough to get grass growing. So. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the, the common theme, right, is that that when we think about difficulty to control, it's it's largely underground, the areas of the plant that we can't see very effectively, 
uh, hard to observe from a from a you know a day to day basis for a superintendent. You know, it, they're going to have to have some form of magnification, whether it's a field scope or something like that. They're going to have to take a you know portion of the plant out, actually tear it apart and look at it if they wanted to see anything, right? So there, that's a difficult thing to monitor versus seeing, you know, a patch form on the surface. And then by the time that that area forms on the surface and in, in the form of symptoms, it's usually long since uh, time to treat uh, down in the in the root zone. So that makes it, you know, especially difficult. And then on top of that, I would argue that I think the other reason why, you know, a lot of these root diseases are extremely challenging to uh, control, at least so far, is that uh, you know, uh, all of us being academics and working on problems, and especially if you're a younger faculty member working towards tenure, you don't want to take on a real challenging disease like, you know, take all root rot or uh, something like that. So uh, there's not been a tremendous amount of research done on that compared to something like brown patch or dollar spot or summer patch. You know, and even summer patch, there's been a, a pretty fair amount of work done for temperature ranges, but we still don't fully understand. I mean, I've, I've had a number of conversations. Paul, you could speak to this a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of folks that think that, you know, bent grass doesn't get summer patch. And, and you know, I've spoken to a lot of, uh, you know, folks that grow bent grass that have seen some significant populations of summer patch and summer patch symptoms on on bent grass in the summer. And then when they engage in a summer patch management program, they, they see some successful control. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's relatively recent seeing uh, summer patch develop on bent grass, traditionally thought of as a straight Kentucky bluegrass, annual bluegrass disease. But, you know, that sort of started, um, Elaine made some of those initial observations years ago back down in, in North Carolina. And we've seen that uh, spread across, um, you know, northern parts of, of of the country. We haven't identified any in the Midwest as of yet. Um, doesn't mean that there hasn't been any summer patch cases on bentgrass in the Midwest. It tends to be, you know, higher stress times of the year that we really see that summer patch, those symptoms develop uh, on bentgrass, but certainly it, it can be a very damaging disease. And if it gets misdiagnosed as take-all patch, uh, they have very different control strategies, uh, controlling for take-all patch and controlling for a summer patch. So, it uh, gets back to um, knowing exactly what you're what you're up against, so you can implement the the proper control strategy. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you know with 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 uh, both with something like summer, like because like you said, like traditionally the 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 thought process was always well, that's take all because it's on bent, right? And and there were probably a fair number of of those that you know perhaps were not exactly identified because you just see the dark hyphae on the roots and say, okay, it's on bent. So therefore it must be, you know, take all and not necessarily the case. And, and in terms of the, the management strategy, you want to just maybe quickly discuss what the differences on those two are. So if, well, if well, sure. So the main one, right, is, is summer patch. You can apply a fungicide during the middle of the summer, right? And you'll see some, some suppression of control. Whereas with take all patch, that fungus has gone dormant by the middle of the summer. And when a fungus is dormant, it's not going to absorb, it's not growing, so it's not going to absorb any fungicide from the growing tip of the hyphae. So with take-all patch, we would never recommend a fungicide during the middle of the season because you're not going to impact the fungus. So it'd be strictly sort of trying to limp the plant along until cooler conditions arrive in the fall. Whereas with summer patch, you know, you can apply a fungicide, you can at least arrest further spread of the fungus, and then you can start to implement you know, some strategies to, to recover some of those, uh, some of the roots that you've lost to infection. So really the, the use or not use of fungicides is the major difference during the middle of the season for, uh, for recovery with summer patch versus take all patch. For sure. And then there's, there's a little bit of a difference in the, the window of temperature too, that, that the pathogen's active, right? So. Yep. So take, take all patch is kind of between, yeah, about 55 and 65 degrees Fahrenheit is where it's most active. And um, in, in the Midwest, that's normally May, where you're going to make your preventative applications for, uh, for that particular disease. Summer patch, the, the fungus starts getting active right around 60 degrees Fahrenheit at a two-inch depth. And then it's going to continue to increase in activity as the, as the soil temperatures warm. So it doesn't slow down at 65 or 70. It's going to, it's going to continue to increase uh, in activity. So really, the hotter and wetter it gets, um, the, the more disease you're going to see with summer patch, which is not necessarily the case with take-all. Take-all conditions are typically, you know, if you kind of have a, a mild wet spring, 
followed by a hot, dry summer, those are prime conditions for take-all. And they're not necessarily the same conditions you would see you would see summer patch in. And in the, med, in the Midwest, we're, we're, we're definitely seeing increasing severity of, of summer patch, uh, especially on annual bluegrass and Kentucky bluegrass. I would say when I first started at UW, we'd maybe see severe summer patch once every four or five years. And now it's, uh, it's every couple of years at this point in time. And normally every other year is sort of a, a pretty severe summer patch year. So warmer and wetter summers are leading to more summer patch. Yeah, for sure. And then on warm season with, with, with take all patch, Joe, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, that uh, there is a little bit of a difference between the take all that we see on something like bent grass and, and what we see on the warm season diseases. You want to talk a little bit about those differences and we can talk a little bit about control strategies and things like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of, of take all root rot on Bermuda grass, I mean, we're targeting those applications starting July one is when, you know, you need to be thinking about your, your take all root rot uh, around that time. And, and that's where we see that that temperature range being much greater than, you know, the gamanomyces that we associate with bent grass. So, um, you know, one yeah, of the things that we like three or so pathogens that are have been kind of indicated that could be causing some of those symptoms. Yeah, there's so uh, I think NC State identified over like maybe closer to five. Um, yeah, that so was work, different right? gamanomyces. There, I mean, a lot of these belong to the the Magnophorthiopsis um, group, but um, so they are somewhat related. And I think one of the good things that did come out of the work at NC State was they did show that while there was variation in pathogens, they do they did have similar sensitivities to to fungicides that they had tested. So that was that was one good thing that. Um, in terms of recognizing that, but you know, we've we have actually seen very strong differences in start dates for our trials. So, like, say, um, we like to look at you know um, having things in place by July one to maybe start mid July. Um, but say we we get delayed in terms of trying to get a trial down, like we did last year, uh, and we we got our first uh, applications down in August. We saw a notable difference in just a two week window from trial to trial. Uh, in terms of, of activity. So definitely something to think about. And um, you know, just to reiterate, you know, some of the work that we're seeing, like last year, we, we decided to throw in, you know, a nematicide treatment with some of our um, actives in a site where we, we knew we had a, a, a thriving population of root knot nematode. That ended up being one of our best treatments. So we actually utilized a, a um, in the trial, we had a, a fungicide that didn't actually perform very well in comparison to some of the other fungicides, but when we mixed it with a nematicide to combat that root knot nematode population, it ended up being one of our best treatments for the entire trial. So, um, you know, definitely, you know, recognizing and, and sampling regularly to assess where you are in terms of your nematode population and getting a proper diagnosis uh, in terms of, you know, whether or not it's take all root rot or other forms of disease because you know there are instances where pythium root rot can look like take all root rot from above on um uh on on ultra bermuda grasses just to, to tie in on a, a, a very interesting story we actually put out a take all root rot trial um at a, a local facility more towards the coast uh that had a history of, of take all root rot and came out, ended up being a, a fantastic trial in terms of getting symptoms to develop. But we noticed that our, our what we would generally associate as a take-all root rot patch, which would, you know, can be about the size of the palm of your hand. We were noticing a little bit larger patches with green in the middle. And we'd pull samples, could find gamanomyces or gamanomyces-like fungi on there. But we incubated them. Then we noticed that we were actually seeing some hyphae emerging with clamp connections. And going back, we realized that this was actually more of a fairy ring trial um, than anything. And we were what we were seeing were smaller fairy rings that developed. And, and granted, you know, a lot of the, the fungicides that we were working with were active against fairy rings. But again, another root issue to face. And, and again, really harping on that proper diagnosis because gamanomyces and these gamanomyces like they're great saprophytes. So they jump on decaying turf and you know, being able to associate, you know, symptoms, visual symptoms with signs is really important. And I think a number of diagnostic labs have really moved to that model of making sure that you're submitting pictures with your, your samples so that we can really get, you know, because again, you know, in some cases, the, the maintenance plan may be similar. So these fungicides, these dual action fungicides, or, you know, 
multi, uh, you know, AIs, they can have broad spectrum effectiveness against different root pathogens. But there are instances where if you have pythium root rot, completely different fungicides required for pythium root rot as opposed to take all root rot. Yeah, for sure. And and could you just speak a little bit to the some of the the nematode uh, work that you're doing? I had a uh, an undergrad um, that did an independent study for me, and I asked him, you know, what topic did he want to do kind of a deep dive on and and dig into? And he said, I'd really like to learn more about nematodes. And I said, All right, well, like, why don't you go find all the all the literature you can find on nematodes? Come back and give me a list of eight or ten nematodes that you think need to be controlled and what their biology is. And he came back and he said, man, everything I can find, I can find all these things about all these different nematodes, but I, it seems like they, they're really good at identifying these nematodes, but they don't really know what they're doing. Well, I mean, we're, we're just kind of getting ready, getting into scratching the surface on, you know, some of our nematode work, but, you know, um, to start, you know, we one of the things that we've done is we we've looked at samples across, you know, the, our region when kind of, you know, stretching up into North Carolina a little bit and just trying to document which nematodes are, are most damaging. Um, you know, sting nematode definitely still reigns king. Uh, Brent grass or Bermuda grass, you know, as few as 20 per 100 cc's of soil is what we document as threshold. Um, and we see a number of sites where we're seeing is definitely a big problem. Um, and, and we do work, uh, you know, from year to year looking at nematicides, um, you know, to try to target timings of, of whether, you know, um, we can combat sting. Um, but then also through our samplings, we're seeing, you know, very high populations of, of root knot nematode. And we uh, have looked at, you know, different extraction methods, much like the work out of University of Florida, where we're looking at mist extraction versus soil extraction. Uh, and a lot of our, you know, work has shown, you know, very similar results in terms of in Bermuda grass, you know, mist extraction for endoparasitic stages of root knot nematode is definitely very revealing in certain cases where you can get, you know, very different numbers in terms of a soil extraction versus a mist. And that can be really important for time of year. And that's something that we're trying to look at now is when can we target those nematodes best? Because getting to them is going to be best achieved through an ectoparasitic stage. And once they're in the root, they're kind of protected, especially against some of our contact nematicides. So I actually have a student that just started that's going to be working on that and trying to document different soil conditions of whether they may be in endoparasitic versus ectoparasitic stages. And then we also have some projects where we're looking at the timing of when nematodes are a problem versus when the fungi that we're, you know, seeing in association with them are a problem. So uh, I have a postdoc that's working on the association between root knot nematode and mini ring because we do see a, a very strong relationship between those. So maybe it's a time of year when, you know, one is there and one is not. I, I would, you know, imagine they're both there, you know, frequently, but, you know, very often we see both of those being an issue. Um, and we've actually shown through some of our trial work where we, again, where we put out an nematicide with fungicides that we know are active against mini ring, we have better control when that nematicide is included and much faster recovery. And again, if you're promoting that root health through, you know, um, different measures, whether it be a nematicide or, or other means, you're going to get better recovery, uh, you know, from some of those fungal diseases. So that's kind of been a, a focal point of what we've seen now. Um, we don't have a lot of work in this area, but we are seeing some rise in lance nematode populations. And one of the reasons that's really highly problematic is that we really don't have a great fungi or nematicide for, for lance nematodes. So, um, you know, there are instances where, where lance nematode can be really detrimental and we see some damage. Um, oftentimes we're seeing these in mixed populations. So if you can control, you know, seeing or root knot nematode, sometimes that can create a niche for lance to come in and thrive because you're eliminating those other nematodes that may be occupying a space. Um, and that's where we're really trying to look to, you know, just basic root health measures. So can we employ certain, you know, compost or we're looking at biochars, anything that we can do that may not necessarily impact the actual nematode population. And that's not to say that those products may not do that. I, there's been some great work out of the University of Florida where they've shown certain compost to actually reduce sting nematode population. Um, but because we see a very direct link with plant health and nematode damage, 
you know, if we can employ some of the benefits of certain amendments that may enhance nutrient retention, enhance drought tolerance, that's going to just help those plants to better survive amidst those high populations of nematodes. Yeah, for sure. Because be, besides just the 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 association with the pathogens, I mean, I I would I would suggest that there's 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 probably a reasonable hypothesis that you could make that you know, any of those areas on putting surfaces, whether it's on warm season turf or even cool season turf, right? That those areas that you constantly, you know, that this area seems to just, you know, dry out and, and, and look a little rougher in, in that spot every summer, all the time, that, that, that there's probably something more than just the fact that that's in a little bit of a high spot and it just dries out a little bit more, but there's, there's probably something munching on it and, you know, underground and there's a, a potential for those, those hot spots or areas that just seem to always be problematic that there might be something biological there in terms of sampling. What, if you were, if, if you were going to recommend to a superintendent, what, what a sampling protocol would be, what would you, what would you say as a way to kind of get started understanding what your nematode impact or nematode load is in your system? Well, I mean, first and foremost is if you do have some of those defined areas, like you're saying, that are traditionally weak, you know, sending in a, a diagnostic sample, um, you know, would be great to just get an idea of what numbers and, and where you stand. I mean, a lot of times we see these areas pop up in transition periods. So like now where we've had a, a really awkward spring, um, we've been very dry. A lot of guys are relying more on irrigation water. So if you have poor irrigation sources, you're, you're stressing out, you know, the turf in that manner. And if you're not getting that general response that you normally expect with a, a transition, again, whether it be cool or warm season, and you've ruled out other factors. So say, you know, I don't really think I have compaction, you know, within those areas. Um, that might be a sign to also, you know, look for uh, a nematode sampling. So, differences between routine sampling and diagnostic sampling would be, you know, if you have a, a defined area of declining turf, you know, that would require more of a diagnostic sampling. And much like we talk about in diseases, we always want to take from that more outer region because that's where those nematodes are thriving. So nematodes need a living host. They don't want to feed on dead turf. And if you've got an area of dead grass, they're going to be, you know, moving outward from the, that area to, to look for more healthy grass. And, and oftentimes they're, there are instances where you may find higher nematode populations on healthier grass because that root population can support a higher, you know, threshold of nematodes. So, um, you know, we would just recommend, you know, pulling, you know, cores from an outside area of a, a defined area declining, or if you're thinking about more of a routine sampling, you know, break up your greens and, you know, just do more of a, a systematic sampling across a given area, you know, 15, 20 plugs, uh, half inch plugs, and then, you know, send those into a, a diagnostic lab that could identify, you know, nematodes at your particular site. Um, those are kind of the differences between that. Now, if you do have a history of, of root knot nematode, and especially if you're managing Bermuda grass, that's when you're getting into the idea of sampling, utilizing the mist extraction versus the, the soil. Um, for bent grass, there's, there's really not much difference. And um, I think that was really shown, you know, through the work at University of Florida. But if you're managing Bermuda grass and you have a known uh, history of root knot nematode, looking at, you know, a mist extraction could be uh, beneficial in determining how many juveniles are actually in the roots and their, you know, variations and thresholds for that as well. So. Gotcha. And then, Paul, are they the folks up in the Midwest talking about nematode impacts and, and things like that? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, it's something that that we're talking about more than um, than we did a, a few years back. One of the one of the problems, though, is is we don't we don't have a real good idea what the thresholds are up here. And so you can get some samples that have pretty high counts, but like Joe was just talking about, you know, healthier turf can oftentimes support uh, higher higher populations of nematodes. Yeah, my aside from saying, I don't think we have an idea either. Yeah. So my, my take on nematodes in, in, in the Midwest uh, is that they're a stress. Uh, they are one of multiple stresses that, that can happen. We tend to see nematodes in the, you know, in the cleanup passes and the walk on the walk off areas, um, just like we tend to see, you know, other root impacting uh, diseases. Uh, and, um, you know, when, when Joe was, was talking about 
uh, was talking about the sort of the overall root health issues on, on nematode issues. It was making me think of a, a take-all trial that we did a few years back on a fairway up in, uh, up in northeastern Wisconsin. And uh, the, the superintendent had the, um, he wanted to keep the carts from going on our, on our trial. So we had the cart signs directing traffic, you know, three feet in front of our take-all trial. The take-all on the other side of those cart signs was incredible. It was awesome take-all. We had no take-all in our trial at all. Now you can't tell me that there was a whole load of fungus three feet away on the other side of the cart signs uh, and there was no fungus in, in, in our trial. It's just a matter of there, the plants were healthier, they were less impacted by, by traffic. And so they had a healthier root system. They were better able to, to, to fend off against uh, the, the, the amount of fungus that was, was present there. And I think we see the same thing with, with nematodes. Um, but certainly there's been cases where uh, nematocytes are needed and we just need more information on, on what sort of, of thresholds exist for our, for our courses in the Midwest and have a better sort of strategy and plan for when nematocytes are, are best used for nematode control up here. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of that, that's, that's so funny um, that you mentioned the, the, the cart traffic and the, and the, the movement of, of the fungus away from your trial. Um, we were, you know, Joe mentioned uh, mini ring is another one that, that, um, you know, we have challenges with in terms of disease timing. And, and one of the things that I think is very difficult for the warm season folks with Bermuda grass is that, you know, on bent grass, you're all, you're, you're moving from when the diseases are active towards a period of recovery, right? Like, diseases are generally active spring, summer. Yes, there are fall diseases, but you're moving towards that window of recovery for most of the, the big diseases. Snow mold would be an exception where you got to deal with it and you're, you're, you might recover a little bit before you get into summer, but that's a, a maybe a, one of those more challenging ones. But for Bermuda grass, one of the things that I think makes some of these diseases extra challenging to know and to be comfortable controlling is that these things are active when you don't see symptoms at all, like because the grass is so actively growing, right? Like mini ring, the pathogen is going to be active. It's Rhizoctonia zea. It's it's the same Rhizoctonia that we see leaf and sheath blight on on bent grass in the hot, you know, really hot summer. Um, that pathogen is active in the middle of the summer on Bermuda grass as well. You don't see any symptoms at all. And then in the fall, when things start to slow down, you start to see damage and you go, oh, I have a problem. And you were talking about that cart thing. I'm just gonna share my screen really quick and, and, uh, and show this mini ring trial that we had because it's a, it's a funny you know, add on to that story. But this is, this is the non-treated control. So as, as you know, when you go off site, you, know, you call superintendent and they go, oh, I'm loaded with that disease, whatever it is, right? And that generally means they get like two patches um, and it's not gonna be where you put the trial. Um, and so we put this trial out on this local golf course on Ultra Dwarf, uh, Bermuda. And, and uh, we got, uh, we started apps in mid-July. Joe, you were talking about take all and, and mini rings, kind of the same thing, mid, mid to late July for application timings. And uh, we, we put this app out and we go, you know, Two, two full cycles of apps, no, no disease apparent at all. So I'm worried about getting data. So we go to another place that's starting to see some symptoms. We put the same trial out there. We get no control out of any fungicides because we, we applied that at a curative timing and we just weren't seeing any recovery from those symptoms. About another week goes by and this trial just blows up with mini ring all over the place. So there's non-treated, there's Kalita, Navicon, another Navicon, another untreated, and then another Kalita. And it was just, it was pretty funny how, um, you know, how, how we saw this, um, this, you know, disease pop up. Um, and, and, and just, it was, it was amazing to me that, you know, the, 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 the pathogen was present. It was active. We were making applications that were controlling it. And we didn't see that until we got to the period where the grass started to slow down and you saw symptoms develop. And, and similar to your point, Paul, with the moving the traffic, you're, you're, you know, you didn't move the fungus, right? You just, you changed where the stress was occurring. 
and and it, it goes right back to that that basic concept of disease triangle if you have a more susceptible host that's where you're going to to see some some disease activity right guys let me let me chime in here um, we have a couple of questions in the q yep, i just pulled them up too go ahead so the first one is um do you have any visual examples of what nematode damage looks like I think Joe can probably throw up one or two. And while that's while Joe's doing that, how how important Joe are are the use of wetting agents to help if they're contact if nematicides are contact to use when you're for treatment? Yeah. So um, you know, so here is a uh, a very characteristic area of sting damage on, on Bermuda grass. I mean, you know, notice it's it's somewhat localized, but very you know uh, diffuse in terms of uh, you know modeled where it is. And basically, uh, I'm not sure if I can figure out how to do the pointer, but you know, yeah, you would you just want to pull from. You can, you can you see can your see mouse it. moving. Oh, okay, you would just pull from that you know that outer region. Um, you definitely don't want to pull from these dead areas, you know, because the, the nematodes are definitely going to move. But in this case, yeah, we, we know that sting was here because this was, um, we, we actually did sample. And, you know, one other telltale here is just looking at those roots. You can see these, you know, short and stubby roots. Um, and this is really characteristic of, of sting nematode damage. Now, um, in terms of nematicides, uh, you know, for sting, um, you know, we, we've got a, a couple of different nematicides that, you know, are very effective, you know, indemnify is highly effective. We, you know, also abamectin or, or Divanim, which is a, another trade product. Um, with, with abamectin, for instance, um, being a contact nematicide, we definitely recommend a wetting agent in the tank with that particular nematicide because you want to be able to penetrate that you know, down into the area where, where those uh, nematodes are active. So, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, following label recommendations, but, um, you know, one other thing that we also recommend with, with abamectin is the use of a strobularin, uh, and, you know, I've seen some, some very good results in uh, root health and, and overall, you know, uh, improvements from that combination as well. So, um, you know, again, that, that those combinations are, are definitely really important. And, you know, we see areas of, of LDS and, um, you know, those can have, you know, lower levels of, of nematode damage. Um, and, you know, again, that's where another wetting agent would be really important. So, yeah, for sure. And I think the other, the other thing too, Joe, and, and I, I know you've seen this as well is that uh, with, with fungicide applications as well, especially now as we're recommending more and more fungicide applications get watered in for, for a systemic activity that, that having that wetting agent program in place before you're making those applications is, is a key thing too, because it does take some time for those wetting agents to get active and start making that wetting front in the soil more uniform and those kinds of things. And in order to do that, you, you, you've got to have that wetting agent program already down and in place in order to make sure that whatever you're going to apply and then water in is, is uniformly distributed in the soil. So that's a key consideration, both from nematode uh, applications as well as uh, fungicide applications. Yeah, um, and I actually I've gotten a question about that recently, you know, thinking about wetting agent programs. And we, just like, you know, you said, Brandon, we definitely recommend being on a wetting agent program. But sometimes I'll get a question of, well, I mean, I've already put out my wetting agent. Am I going to hurt my greens by applying too much wetting agent? And we've so all of our nematicide trials that we've done, and, and typically, you know, for uh, specifically for for abamectin, we're always applying that with a wetting agent. We're applying these on areas where there's already an established wetting agent program. So, you know, we may be utilizing, you know, um, you know, something like Fleet or, you know or a revolution on a regular basis. So say like a monthly application of, of four ounces, you know, in the case of some of our maintenance applications, but even on top of that for an abamectin application, we're going out with, with a, a wetting agent included in that tank mix as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the, the, the key there is, is just making sure that there's, there's some space between those applications, right? Like you just, mm -hmm. the only time I would be concerned of, of overloading the system with a wetting agent would be if you were, you know, going back to back with applications and, and really, you know, greatly increasing a, 
you know, the potential rate that you were putting out. But for the most part, that's not going to be an issue with those, you know, maintenance applications versus a, a targeted app like a nematicide app. Exactly. Like and, and you could also time your wedding agent application with your nematicide. So if you're on a schedule for your wedding agent program and you have concerns over applying too much wedding agent, try to time your application so that you're getting that nematicide down when your wedding agent is needed. That's also another way to, to look at that in terms of product use and efficiency. So, so yeah. as, as the non-pathologist, would, would you want to separate those applications with your, your nematicide with the wedding agent? To get it into the soil to where the, the, the nematodes are. But if you're going to follow it with or use a strobe as well, would you want to put that as a separate application so you can get the systemic uptake by the plant? So you get that. Yeah, so we're, we're tank mixing in the soil all of those. Well. We're tank mixing all those together, you know, so yeah. we don't see any any detriment to to putting a, a strobe in the same tank with the wedding agent with the nematicide. Um, in the case of that. So, you know, it depends on, you know, what you're trying to target. You know, if you're really trying to, to drive that product down and, and get that uptake in the roots, um, you know, we don't see any detriment to putting all of all three of those ingredients in the tank. They could be taken up by the roots, but I just wasn't sure if the roots are compromised, would you want to, if it's got a, a bicipital or a cropital, a bicipital movement down to the roots, mm -hmm. you want to get yeah, it. Yeah, we haven't. You want that strobe to protect the plant by getting it on the plant if the roots are being compromised. Yeah, but in terms of that application, you know, we're really trying to drive it down into the roots. So, you know, we wanted we wanted that product there, you know, but if we were looking at more of a, a plant or upper protection, maybe it would be making more sense to have it as a separate application. But because we're seeing the benefit of this with the combination of nematodes and potential fungi that are existing in that, that system, that's where we're, we're seeing the benefit of the three-way tank mix. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another question that uh, came in is uh, about uh, residential lawns and active areas of research for disease control in residential lawns and what are uh, good sources of information. Um, you know, I would I would say, and you guys chime in, uh, the, the big areas uh, of, of research for uh, residential lawn in terms of disease control, um, certainly in, in our area is, is uh, on warm season grasses, it's going to be large patch predominantly. Um, and then uh, maybe a little bit of spring dead spot, uh, but mostly large patch uh, on zoysia grass. And then um, uh, in other residential lawns would be uh, brown patch and tall fescues, probably the big one that uh, you know folks need to control in this area. Um, and then uh, cool season wise, I would suspect that it, Paul, it's probably what necrotic ring spot, spring, summer patch, that, that type of stuff on Kentucky bluegrass or mixtures of Kentucky bluegrass? Yeah, so necrotic, necrotic ring spot, summer patch on Kentucky bluegrass. We have research going into, you know, various diseases, summer patch, red thread, snow molds on fine fescues, you know, uh, for that particular species. But the vast majority of disease problems on lawns in the Midwest are, are necrotic ring spot and summer patch on, on bluegrass. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And then in terms of good sources for information, I mean, I would, I would say that you're, you're, your extension pubs uh, in your various states are probably a pretty solid source of information. And then, uh, in terms of fungicide control, you know, staying on top of you know what's being put out at uh, at at uh, NC State and the turf files, there's a pretty good resource of of information. We're getting ready to add uh, diseases to our uh, our mobile weeds app, and it's going to become the mobile pest app. So that's uh, an area that will be an area of information. We're loading uh, some of that efficacy information in there now. And then certainly the document that you contribute to, Paul, and you could speak to this is the, the PPA-1 uh, that's done with uh, you, uh, Paul Vincelli, and, and Bruce Clark, right? Yep. So we've, I've been involved with that, uh, that publication the past couple of years as, as Paul Vincelli is sort of uh, gradually moving uh, outside of turf. We are working on a new update. We're not going to have it out uh, probably this year. Uh, but we're just making some final updates to that and leave it, either have it out later this summer or, uh, or over the winter. And we also have a, um, similar to what Brandon talked about, we also have a, a mobile online version of that that we host at the University uh, of Wisconsin, which is turfpests.wisc.edu. So it's basically just an online searchable format of that Kentucky document. So we're, Brandon and guys, we have 
more and more in East Tennessee, especially the upper East Tennessee, we have more and more bluegrass lawns going in. So with brown patch, rhizoctonia being the big thing on the tall fescue lawns and summer patch, obviously on the bluegrass, control control for those for home lawns. Is it the same products? Is it is it you know the good strobies again? Like yeah, they're gonna they're gonna be different. Uh, strobies are gonna be solid on on both of them. Um, the the other thing that I would I would strongly uh, support would be you know just like you know up in the the midwest the the three-way uh mixture of of grass seed of fine fescue perennial rye and kentucky bluegrass is usually a pretty solid uh setup for uh for a home lawn in our area i would highly recommend uh neither a mono stand of tall fescue nor a mono stand of kentucky bluegrass but a a very strong mixture of the two uh I did research when I was at Virginia Tech where we looked at mixtures and, and when you looked at a mixture of 50-50, of, of close to a 50-50 on seed count, right? So that's going to be a lot more Kentucky bluegrass seeds than tall fescue seeds um, uh, in terms of percentage if you look at the, the, the overall amount, but there's a lot more of the seed, you know, a 50-50 mixture on seed count you saw um, a reduction in both summer patch and a reduction in brown patch because you had enough non-host in the way that you weren't able to really get a whole lot of uh, disease activity going on either one of those. And so I think that's that's something that, that we'll wanna consider as we start to see some of these heat tolerant bluegrasses that look really good kind of move into our area for sure. Um, another question, and Joe, you can you can speak to this uh, from a diagnostic perspective. Is there a website or email address we can send pictures to help identify diseases? This is the hardest uh, area for me to identify. And I, all I would say is we don't have a diagnostic clinic uh, that, that I run. Uh, our state uh, diagnostic clinic over in Nashville does take samples. Um, you know, pictures are, you know, if I send you a picture like this, that's that's pretty, you know, pretty easy to figure out what that is if I tell you it's Kentucky bluegrass in the summer in Cincinnati. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I think, you know, I, I always like to say that textbook pictures are textbook pictures for a reason. And uh, very often the, the pictures that you have uh, of something happening on your turf stand isn't necessarily a textbook picture. So you want to speak a little bit about the diagnostic process and and the challenges associated with picking out a disease on pictures? Yeah, sure. I mean, really in terms of, you know, if you're having difficulty with diagnosis, utilize your, your local diagnostic office or, or clinic, um, you know, should you have them. And, um, you know, as far as, as resources, there are plenty of resources where you can find pictures and, and you can find variation in textbook pictures. But, you know, we, we pick those and, and get them on the web because they're very good visuals for, you know, seeing these. But, just like I had mentioned earlier with the fairy ring take all root rot, you know, uh, conundrum that we were seeing, it really takes a, a trained diagnostic eye to be able to differentiate some of these. And, you know, a lot of these fungi that we work with, they're incredible saprophytes where they, you know, may not be the, the necessarily the pathogen in that case. And sometimes there are similarities in the way that these look. Um, you know, we have issues where we see a lot of curvularia that can come in or leptospherulina or, you know, these are things that come in and it may look to an untrained eye that these are the causal agents, but they're really just great sacrifice jumping on dead turf. So um, definitely recommend, you know, utilizing a diagnostic lab for being able to differentiate, you know, symptoms. So something like, you know, I know Brandon's showing some necrotic ring spot, but, you know, thinking about, you know, tall fescue, you know, gray leaf spot, pythium blight, and even brown patch in certain cases, those can, can have similarities in their symptoms. And it, it again, it just takes um, years and years of experience and, and high powered microscopes to really be able to differentiate these in a lot of cases. Um, there are, you know, some instances where a, a picture can be very, um, you know, helpful, but it's not the, the end all in terms of being able to form a, an accurate diagnosis. And that's really critical when trying to address control issues. So, For sure. Well, I think we're out of time. Tyler, you want to handle the particulars for the GCSAA education points? Yeah. So um, for GCSAA education points, um, this is your event approval code. Um, and you need to make sure that you put down this 
event date, whether that's being, um, whether you're watching this live or as a recorded version, this is the information you need in order to obtain these pesticide credits. So, right. and, and then Tyler, there's a, there's a question in the Q and A about uh, just passing pesticide application uh, certification exam on June 1st, still waiting for license. Uh, Daryl Hensley told me to reach out to the chair. So uh, for the person that, that asked this question, we'll go ahead and get your name and information to, uh, I would say, Dr. Brosnan, who is kind of the, the organizer of, of our Turf Tuesdays and, and, and get him uh, that information so that uh, he can follow up with you to, to resolve that issue uh, accordingly. Yes, I, we, I'll type in his, uh, his email address, Brosnan. Yeah, let's do that. That'd be good. It's Brosnan at um, utk.edu, right? I believe. That's right. Okay. Since you just gave that out to everybody. I mean, it's, it's, on, it's on the website. It's not like he's young. Yeah, no, I know. It's Jay Brosnan. I'm, I'm going to stop the recording. And... Thanks everybody for uh, for being here. Um, just uh, thank you to all the attendees. Uh, hopefully you you got something out of this, and um, really uh, really appreciate y'all being here and and paying attention. Joe and and Paul, thanks for being willing to come on and and chat about diseases. Uh, always exciting to to see you both, and look forward to seeing you in person uh, somewhere soon down the road. All right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.